Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So it seems like the last episode with Dave Newell and Jack Jew was necessary. The feedback by and large was supportive and positive, but clearly you cannot please everyone. And for some people, there's no argument, reason or evidence, let alone a podcast, that will ever initiate a reflection or reconsideration of their position and their beliefs. So as promised, I've continued to explore these issues, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Carlo Martini, about pseudoscience and pseudoscientific claims. Carlo is an associate professor in philosophy of science at Vita Salu San Rafael University in Milan and a visiting fellow at the Centre for Philosophy of Social Science at the University of Helsinki. And he's worked on the interface between science and policy, scientific expertise and science communication. I spoke with Carlo last year in a two-part episode on experts expertise and trust, and many of the topics around pseudoscience that we discuss in this episode have overlapped with expertise and how we recognise and come to trust an expert. So I'd encourage you to listen or re-listen to those conversations, which are episodes 53 and 54. So in this episode we speak about the value-ladenness of the term scientific and how the label can add value to a treatment, practice or person. And we speak about the equalising effect of the label pseudoscience and how this seeks to remove any undeserved benefit of misusing the label of scientific. We speak about the motives, incentives and intentions of those that might make or perpetuate pseudoscientific claims. And we speak about how some practices and professions seem more susceptible than others to be informed by pseudoscience, but that pseudoscience can be found across all disciplines, from homeopathy, osteopathy, nutrition, medicine, and even physics. We speak about the importance of peer review and the openness of the scientific community. And finally, we speak about the ethics and harms of pseudoscience and pseudoscientific claims. So this was another great conversation with Carlo. His outsider position affords him a more dispassionate view of healthcare and his philosophical and sociological perspectives on pseudoscience was incredibly insightful. So I bring you Dr. Carlo Martini. Carlo, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Oliver. Thanks. Thanks for having me back here. That's right. We spoke in March last year about expertise and trusting the trustworthy. And... We're going to speak again about trustworthiness, but rather around trustworthiness of individuals, more about the scientific claims, and more importantly, when claims don't seem to match up to the scientific truth that they pretend to be. So I'm looking forward to talking about pseudoscience and everything related. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So Carlo, perhaps before we get into all of that, do you want to introduce yourself, your current academic work, how you describe what you currently do? 
Yes, um, I'm an associate professor at Vita Salute San Raffaele University in Milan and also a visiting fellow at the uh, Center for Philosophy of Social Science at the University of Helsinki. I work mostly on the interface between science and policy, really. So topics of expertise, topics of trust in science, for example, uh, and trust in scientists. And lately I've been working um, on a European, on a project funded by the European Research Council on uh, policy expertise and trust. So it seems they're connected expertise with trustworthiness of science and the truthfulness of scientific claims. Perhaps you can firstly describe how you became interested in pseudoscience and also the connections between expertise and scientific truth or trustworthiness. Yes, uh, so I became interested in uh, pseudoscience actually from a personal experience. Um, old friend of mine from um, the university years, uh, we were studying philosophy together and we stayed in touch after graduating. Um, so she became pregnant and then she had the baby and she was receiving all kinds of information about vaccines um, from the internet, from social media, from uh, Facebook, from but also from friends. And this information was about the possible dangers of vaccines, about the possible dangers of too many vaccines. So the idea, okay, we should maybe try to phase them out in the growth of the of the child and so on. And she she was a bit lost, so she didn't really know what to believe. Um, she um, knew that the science tells us vaccines are safe and the vaccines we give to uh, the children are not too much. They are okay and they are given at, at the right stage of their development and so on. But of course, she was also receiving lots of different type of information. But the key element was that this kind of information that she was receiving looked legitimate. It looked scientific. People that were given this information, they presented themselves as experts. They referenced sources. They referenced reports, articles, calling them scientific. So the friend came to me asking for my advice, which of course I couldn't give. I'm not an expert on vaccines, so I wouldn't feel at ease giving uh, advice on such a matter. But what I learned that I could do was to have a look into these sources and try to understand where the information was coming from and why it looked scientific without actually being scientific. So as a philosopher of science, I'm I'm not an expert in specific sciences, but I, I have a general knowledge of the method of science, the social epistemology of science is also a big word, but it means that the context in which scientific knowledge arises and so on. So I could do some kind of analysis of, of that context. And I became interested in uh, uh, pseudoscience and pseudo experts. Yeah, we touched on that in, in our conversation or our two-part conversation last year. I suppose maybe now is a good time to just 
begin to map out what we mean by pseudoscience or what you mean by pseudoscience. It's a phrase, a term which most of us, all of us are familiar with. It seems to have a negative derogatory meaning or connotation, but I suppose maybe map out what pseudoscience is as a as a phrase and maybe currently how it's used and whether or not it's a it's an acceptable label to give a particular claim. I mean clearly you think it's acceptable because you're using it, but it would seem to be that you it's something could be unscientific, for example, or it might be just poor science or bad science. Pseudoscience has has some different characteristics around intent and motive. Yes. So I would start actually from the descriptive level because I think that there is such a level to the term pseudoscience. The simplest definition is that pseudoscience is something that looks like science or pretends to be science. It has the intention of looking like science, but it's not. And of course, science is a complex term. Um, a century of uh, studies in in philosophy of science tell us that uh, we don't really have a definition, uh, a unique definition of what science is. Just just to dwell on that, is it a method? Is it a philosophy? Is it a position? Is it a set of assumptions? It can be used to describe all of those different things. Right. So we we have figured out that we we cannot really identify a single method, for example, but there's a variety of methods and a variety of practices of uh, doing science and so on. However, we also learned that there are many many aspects that are not scientific. So so we know what is not really science. But of course, science does have a set of characteristics and um, we can evaluate these aspects. So the methodological aspect, the sociological aspect and so on. And pseudoscience tries to imitate those aspects without maintaining the same level of quality in the methodology, in the social practices and so on. One very simple example that we can bring up is peer review. A lot of pseudoscience tries to imitate the process of peer review, but it doesn't really do it right. As you said, pseudoscience has a, it's, it's a, also has a derogatory connotation. And that's because like science and scientific uh, are terms that are often used as uh, value-laden terms. So we, we apply the term scientific not only to describe something as following a certain methodology, but also to say things like it's trustworthy, uh, you should, you can rely on it, you can trust it and so on. So these are all value judgment. And just like we apply the term scientific in this way, we can also misapply the term scientific in this way. So we can say of something, uh, it could be a published piece, it could be a presentation, it could be a statement. So we can apply the term scientific 
but whatever the product that we are applying the term to is, it has really gone through the same process that guarantees quality in, in science. My metaphor is, um, it's a bit like, um, like a counterfeit product, you know, we, so we have a, we have a brand and usually the brand can signal some type of production process, some guarantee in the uh, sourcing of materials that make up the product and so on. Anyway, a brand has something to it, but if we if we have a, a, a knockoff, right? If we have a, a, a counterfeit product, we, we get the same uh, apparent result. We have a, let's say a shoe, for example, that looks like it's a, it's a brand. It has a, a brand behind it, but it hasn't gone through that process. So the, the creation of pseudoscience is a little bit similar, only that we are not discussing brands, but we are discussing something that uh, has a, you know, history of hundreds of years in the development of certain methodologies and the development of certain social practices and so on. So they have gained a certain status in our quality of knowledge productions. And so by, by leveling the accusation of pseudoscience, or pseudoscientific claim, you're just balancing that equation. So what the individual or the product or the practice or the ideology is gaining from using the term scientific, the label of pseudoscience just looks to subtract that gain and balance that that equation. It, it, It sounds to me that it sounds to me that there is something around motive and intent and the people making the knockoff Gucci bags in whichever part of the world, they know that they're not Gucci handbags but are branding it and styling it to the same way as the genuine legitimate product. Perhaps explore more about the intent and purposeful motive of of deceit is that is that fair is that too strong or can you just accidentally do pseudoscience i mean can you just conduct a study or make a scientific claim with the best intent but inadvertently you're falling into a pseudoscientific position both options are possible so there is quite quite a lot of pseudoscience out there which um is created with a specific intent to to deceive it often goes by the name of uh, disinformation so there is a lot of disinformation out there and that's usually is defined as the uh, spread of uh, false or misleading information with intent but not all pseudoscience comes from negative intent so some people they may believe that they are genuinely producing knowledge that is valuable. But for a number of reasons, uh, some that might have been demonstrated for a hundred years or, or, or more, some methodologies are, uh, you know, they have been shown to be uh, poor for a very long time. Uh, and, and some people might just be 
not aware that this is the case, that they are producing a type of knowledge which is not of very good quality. So in some cases, there is um, malign intent, let's say, uh, ill intent. And in some cases, there isn't. But calling something pseudoscientific is um, sort of, I think it's, it's um, yeah, a, a way of balancing the, uh, you know, the fact that many people call something scientific, which, which is not scientific. So it's, it's, it's a bit like taking the fake label of something. It's not yet a statement about the quality of that knowledge. It's simply to say, so, so sorry, I should rephrase that. So it's not Calling something pseudoscientific doesn't mean that you are wrong because you're, you know, I'm, I'm telling you that your your knowledge is pseudoscientific. But it's to say whatever you have produced, whatever knowledge you think you have, it's not good enough according to the standards of science that have uh, developed over hundreds of years. Some people might still want to listen to you and some people might still want to um, believe whatever you believe, but just don't go around calling it scientific because it is not. I just want to think that there's a, I really like your pseudo engineering example. And I'm just trying to think of a, a, a kind of nice kind of segue into that. Yeah. So different. Um, let's say, different practices, they, I think they are more or less prone to the existence of pseudoscience. So, so there is a, there is a a discipline, there is a science, let's call it, and there can be pseudoscience. But there are different factors that favor the existence of pseudoscience. One is the incentives behind the possible existence of pseudoscience. So these incentives can be monetary or or not. One of the examples I use is um, philology. Is there pseudophilology? What's, what's philology? So philology is, for example, the study of old documents for example, to establish whether a certain document was written in a certain period, whether it really says something, who who wrote it and so on. I mean, I I guess it's, um, I'm not a philologist, but uh, I guess this is one of the things that uh, philology can do. I'm sure it does many other things. But is, is there any incentive in producing uh, for example, a document to say that it was um, written by some king in the 1800, um, but it's really not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what what's the purpose of this? Indeed, there is quite little pseudo philology, or but there are exceptions, and um, these exceptions sort of confirm the rule that when there are incentives, then there can be a pseudoscience. Uh, for example, the incentives are 
there was in the in the 20th century in the beginning of the 20th century um i believe some anti-semitic groups they um produced a document that was um apparently a proof that uh jews were behind some world domination you know some conspiracy theory about the the jews and then this document was produced with the intent of showing that there was such a conspiracy it was revealed that this document was a fake but here you see like a clear incentive this is a bit of an exception more often the incentives are economic for example it has been shown that the intent behind wakefield's uh, original paper that was published i believe in the lancet it came out that was uh, to support litigation groups in the vaccine cases so families believed in good faith probably that their kids were being poisoned by the government and um groups of lawyers were trying to sue the government to get um to, to get compensation so these were uh, litigation suits and of course in a litigation suit you need some kind of proof some kind of science behind it and the, it, it was later shown that the paper was actually supporting these suits this litigation groups uh, proved their point against uh, the government so some sciences are more open to so they're more or let's say susceptible to uh, pseudoscience when there are strong incentives but it's not the only factor um of course uh, going back to now to your example you may say well there are huge incentives in engineering right um i mean engineering has very concrete and expensive often applications so why isn't there a lot of pseudo engineering and that's because for the most part there might be exceptions but for the most part engineering has only one level of empirical adequacy and and the level is does it work or not so it, it's it's complex of course engineering is a is a complex science but it, at a certain level it's actually a very simple science in the sense that we can observe the effect of an engineering application quite quickly uh, and in a relatively straightforward manner so if i build the bridge well the litmus test is is my bridge going to uh, stand or or will it collapse so there is quite little uh, opportunity for pseudo engineering because usually pseudoscience doesn't tell us the you know the the truth and if you don't tell the truth when you're building a bridge if your if your calculations don't stand the proof of nature let's say well the effects will be visible quite quickly and quite um sometimes quite dramatically in, in in that case in other disciplines and this includes many of the health sciences this is unfortunately much more complex because health is a complex complex sorry concept and often we don't see the effects of an intervention 
until quite a bit later. So the incentives towards um, pseudoscience in health-related matters are are higher. It is easier to produce mm. pseudoscience. Part of that might just be the the possible outcomes from healthcare. So with the bridge example, you're really looking to see if it's going to collapse the minute the scaffolding is removed or in five, ten years' time. But the notion of collapse is the important outcome. With healthcare, the number of outcomes range from mortality, morbidity, satisfaction, some other sense of well-being. I mean, there's such a spectrum of ways that pseudoscience might pretend to be beneficial or give the impression that it's beneficial to to people utilizing it, that it's much harder to distinguish. Exactly. So like I, I was saying, there are many levels of evaluating whether an intervention is uh, successful or not. So like you said, mortality, morbidity, but also satisfaction. Do Maybe I'm alive, but is my quality of life good? So this complexity of levels at which we can judge a, a medical intervention makes it easier to claim that there is a benefit when there isn't. Usually that's the claim of um, health-related pseudoscience, that something will be beneficial, but it, it won't be. Um, but it makes it easier to claim that. Now that we've arrived at healthcare, which is seemingly the the place where pseudoscience thrives and has the most incentive, I suppose. It, it would seem to me that it can find its way into all sorts of practices. So there's clearly health disciplines, quasi-health disciplines, which are based on pseudoscience. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a claim or a practice which isn't pseudoscientific. I suppose... You know, Reiki might be an example. Homeopathy might be another. For the most part, and I, I don't know either discipline especially well, but it would seem to me that those pseudoscientific premises are rife within those disciplines. And then you've got fields like nutrition or my profession, osteopathy, where it's a bit of a mixture of claims and practices which seem to correspond with scientific principles, methods, truth. But amongst those, there's some of the more bizarre or pseudoscientific claims and practices. And it's harder to, a bit like your friend who was pregnant, you know, you can try to navigate these scientific truths or pseudoscientific truths is difficult. Right. So it's nice that you mentioned nutrition because what started my interest in uh, pseudo-experts and pseudoscience was this personal experience with um, with my friend. But what consolidated my interest was meeting a nutritionist um, several years later. Uh, I was presenting my work on pseudoscience at the Congress on pancreatic cancer. I don't know anything about pancreatic cancer, but I was presenting the topics of science and pseudoscience. And at the same uh, session, this nutritionist was 
talking about nutrition, the importance of nutrition in oncological cases. So patients that have cancer, they have to take very good care of their nutrition, especially certain types of cancer. And in one of his slides, he had um, many, many examples of books and, and reports and articles that pretended to be scientific, but were not. These were examples of um, cancer diets, for example. So diets that were uh, sold, they were presented as diets that could either prevent cancer or even cure cancer. But these were completely bogus claims. And we had a chat at the end of uh, the session and he told me that he really appreciated that there was someone talking about pseudoscience to scientists, to, to doctors in that case, because he found that it was such a huge problem in his profession. He had patients coming in with a diagnosis of cancer or pancreatic cancer uh, specifically, who in a matter of weeks or days had decided to start a new diet that some friends or some book had told them was very good, was going to help their recovery. These new diets, they were often started without really any, any medical advice. In some cases, they were drastic changes in one's uh, habits, uh, eating habits. So, you know, when, when, you're, when you're trying to revolutionize completely the way you eat, well, it might be difficult to keep track of getting the right nutrients into your system. You know, you, you might make mistakes and so on. And so these patients, in many cases, uh, they were actually harming themselves going on to these new diets and maybe, for example, reducing their caloric intake, uh, which apparently I, again, I'm no expert on these matters, but what I was told is in some cases, it's very important to keep your caloric intake up when you have cancer and so on. So this is what kind of consolidated my interest. And um, also this is what uh, made me understand that maybe there was a bigger audience than I thought. Uh, pseudoscience wasn't really just a topic for philosophers of science. Of course, philosophers of science have been chatting about pseudoscience for a, quite a long time. But it made me understand that maybe there was a, a bigger audience, an audience of um, scientists and possibly also professionals who might uh, find themselves in the situation of explaining to their patients, look what, what you're reading. I know it really looks legitimate. I know it really looks professional. It really looks like science, but it's not. It's, it's a counterfeit you're being deceived in this case. And if you've got, uh, is there a way to understand the prevalence of pseudoscience amongst different disciplines? So why is it that some disciplines seem to have been taken hostage or to be kind of imbibed with scientific, with pseudoscientific claims more than 
than others. And it, I suppose it gets back to some of the social benefits of pretending to be scientific and, and the desire of those groups to appear legitimate. Yes. So there are often incentives, but not always. There are clear cases in which there's a certain possibly ideology behind. I think this is a, the case in the in the health sciences. The, the idea that, for example, traditional medicine is is not good. And often it's a bit, a bit of a slippery slope between traditional medicine is not always good or it's, it's not good enough or traditional medicine can be bad in, in some cases. There have been cases of malpractice or, um, you know, bad science. No one is denying that, but it's a slippery slope to all traditional medicine is bad or most of traditional medicine is bad and we should find other ways of curing ourselves. Uh, sometimes the ideology is that everything that is natural is good, but everything that is non-natural in however we want to define that, it might be a bit complex, but whatever, you know, let's assume that chemicals are not natural. So whatever is not natural is bad for you. So there is definitely quite a bit of ideology in uh, health-related um, pseudoscience mixed with sometimes economic interest and sometimes um, ill intents. So it's quite proven that the homeopathic industry is huge and possibly growing and other possibly professions and industries, they they might have strong economic interests. And I'm going to put to you a recent example, experience of, of mine, which I know that you know about, about the pericardium and this conversation with you is, is part way to try and to understand some of the claims made by colleagues. But it would seem to me that pseudoscientific claims are also made in the absence of scientific evidence. So the example that I'm referring to, which I think most people that listen to the show will be familiar with, is that a claim was made with on social media, on Facebook, that you could palpate with touch with your hands through, I guess, the external body, the chest wall or wherever, the structure and function of the pericardial sac and potentially influence the function of that sac of that tissue by, I'm not sure, pressure or just thinking about the tissue or some focus intent towards the tissue and the tissue would change its properties and the person would feel better in however way. I'm not aware of any scientific studies which have tested that hypothesis. And so the person making it, and it's not just this is a profession-wide claim, it's a belief shared by a bunch of individuals, not just one person. But so, so, there, aren't, so there, aren't, there aren't scientific studies determining the, the, the kind of truthfulness of that claim. Rather, it's resting on some understanding of anatomy that people have hearts and there's a sac and that's maybe connected to parts of the chest. I mean, there's a kind of intricate anatomical connection. Things like that and, and 
some of those claims such as that where they seem to, on the face of it, appear like they're following some scientific principles or medical facts, which perhaps there aren't scientific studies to support. I mean, where do they sit? I mean, where do where does the absence of scientific evidence allow for being creative and open-minded around the possibilities of what practitioners or the body can do? And when does that begin to just fall into pseudoscience? So like you said, we can make all kinds of conjectures in science. And in fact, many scientists and many philosophers of science have said or implied that actually it's a good thing that we have the freedom in science to make conjectures. We don't need to believe everything that previous scientists have said or or written, but, you know, we can freely make new conjectures and test new hypotheses. And these hypotheses are often very, are, are often even the product of our imagination, of our ability to conceive of things in, in different ways and alternative ways. But then comes the test of truth, in a sense. So as remote from an understanding of our physics, chemistry, anatomy, and so on, that a hypothesis might be, that we can influence the pericardium by massaging parts of the chest and so on. So uh, I my understanding is that that hypothesis would imply quite a big change in our understanding of anatomy and, and so on. But, you know, as far remote as it, it um, might be, I think anyone who has the willingness and the means to do so should be free to check it and test it and, and um, try to demonstrate that it is actually true. So to gain a certain level of empirical, empirical, sorry, adequacy to that hypothesis. So we postulate that something works in a certain way and we check, well, does it? And there is a methodology for doing so. Or even better, there are many methodologies and some are good and some are bad for quite important reasons that scientists for hundreds of years have studied. If we bypass that methodology, well, we either come up with something better or at that point, we fall into the trap of pseudoscience, even in the absence of incentives. So maybe for ideological reason, we want to believe that our methodology is good, but it is not. So scientific claims are, they may originate from one or two or a few scientists, but scientific claims are scientific because the community makes them so. This is a relatively recent but quite strong uh, discovery, let's say, of, of recent philosophy of science uh, to say that it, it's the scientific community that makes claims scientific, that, that gives a label of quality 
to, to our knowledge, that makes our knowledge strong. Because we make a claim, and, you know, scientists by nature, they are very polemical type of people. They, you know, they want to say, no, you're wrong. And actually, that's very good. It's very good that I say something, and there are 10 people who try to show that I'm wrong. And if I can, you know, if I can debate them, and if I can counter-argue, no, I'm right, and I can convince an entire community of people that these people who think I'm wrong are actually wrong themselves, and I, I made a good claim. Well, that's important, but this is a product of a community. It's not a product of my intelligence only. My intelligence might be what originates the claim and the hypothesis and tests and so on, but then it's the community too that allows for that claim to become knowledge and scientific knowledge. And go, going back to your point, so when when do we go from, you know, like a maverick hypothesis or, a, you know, some, some very audacious theory to pseudoscience? when we want to push that idea, that theory, that hypothesis against all other claims by the scientific community, against all the odds, let's say, against, you know, repeated proofs that your idea is is untenable, it's, it's not good. And the way that you're trying to support your hypothesis is not the correct way. It's not the good way. And it's just made me think that 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 claim around the pericardial palpation, but all the claims that we've alluded to so far, they're often not explicitly pretending to be scientific claims. I mean, the claim about the pericardial was just a claim about how the body works, and it wasn't so. So the, so the, the pretense is often not explicit you know so so it's more about making statements about the biological reality or the the physical reality and so before we judge whether they're true or not you have to judge whether they're scientific claims and and the pericardial example some of the response i've had is that well i just experience this tissue releasing when i'm with a patient and science is unable to access just my utter belief that this tissue is is releasing and my patients claim that they feel better and it just begins to really muddy the water so then it's not a clear here's a scientific claim and then we test it but often the goals are shifted and it's well it's not really scientific or it's science is unable to to really determine this it's a much more interactive experiential knowledge which i'm utilizing who judges whether or not the claim is scientific? Right. Like I said, scientific is, is a value-laden term, adjective. So no one is claiming that, um, I wouldn't at least claim that these people shouldn't say things like, I experienced this and my patient has reported feeling that. But there are plenty of astrologers who can claim that they have 
experienced an alignment of planets as being beneficial to something and uh, plenty of people who consulted astrologers that would uh, swear that uh, yes it's it's right you know i mean truman was consulting astrologers uh, i don't know this is maybe not not well known but um, and very important people who take very important decisions in in our lives uh, unfortunately they consult astrologers i mean going back to the point People experience all sorts of things. They experience mystical enlightening. They experience miracles. Uh, you know, there's we have lots of testimony of miracles, for example, and so on. Well, there's just to, to stop you there. Or there's a subjective or potentially a measurable change in health status, which has nothing to do with the pericardium or any other claim. But actually, there's a completely different mechanism by which that result happens and so, so people may well get better from astrology for example but it may not be the astrological mechanism but it's it's like who knows some kind of sense of autonomy or i mean who knows it could be a bunch of other reasons right right of course there can be all sorts of placebo effects at play i believe i might have to check this but i believe that someone demonstrated the positive effects of prayer. I mean, it's a human activity which might make some people feel good and by some indirect effect, people might experience a positive improvement in their lives. But whether the cancerous cells in your body will be affected by your utterances to some supernatural divinity. Well, this causal chain is poor to say the least. I would like to say it's completely absurd. So these are very, very different claims. And I suppose it's that humility to say is is to 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 acknowledge maybe the potential benefit of the act of prayer, but be completely agnostic or humble about the, the proposed mechanism rather than saying, well, no, it it is actually the uttering the uttering of those words to a divine being. It, it, it's that acknowledgement of the uncertainty around how that effect may have come about. Right. I think epistemic humility or humility in general is very important in science and, and probably also in uh, uh, practices that are that want to be based on science. So this is also the, the difference that um, I, I haven't met any priest who is selling their, you know, co confessional practices on the basis of... Um, you know, scientific evidence or randomized controlled trials. Well, you don't practice confession in the UK, but still in, in the Catholic countries, they do that a lot. So I haven't met any, you know, maybe there are some, and uh, there might be many astrologers that are not really um, claiming to be scientists and many healers and so on. And indeed, there are many practices that are anti-scientific. So they they find their 
reason to be in the opposition to science. So they are saying, I am the opposite of science. I believe in some supernatural force, which cannot be possibly demonstrated in, in any way. And I'm promising you that it works. Uh, and some people believe that. And some people even find the benefit in those practices because of a number of other causal channels like placebo effects and, and all of that. What what happens in some professions, and I imagine this could be a case in, in, in your profession, is that uh, there are practices that are based on evidence. There are uh, procedures that are based on um, systematic observation of facts and, and you know, uh, statistics and numbers and so on. And then there are many other practices that are much more speculative. Possibly there isn't enough evidence yet, but there might be. Some might be based on reasonable causal connections about what we know I mean, based on what we know about physiology and chemistry and this and that, and others might be much wilder in nature, so they would imply very important revolutions in what we know about the human body and so on. But but there is a factor here which contributes to pseudoscience. So I have collaborated recently with uh, some social scientists, um, an economist and a cognitive psychologists, we have done some experiments and we, we tested whether recommendations uh, about vaccines that we previously ran by um, doctors. So we didn't give them ourselves. We, we found them online in reputable sources. We ran them by doctors and they said, yes, this is a good recommendation. So we our experiments were ethical and approved by ethical committee. But what, what we uh, observed is that when, when you put the label, so, so you have a recommendation and you, you are stating the source of the recommendation, simply the fact of saying this recommendation came from a medical professional immediately changes the level of trust that people have towards that recommendation. If you want to try with a, with an image, it would be like having someone dressed in, in plain clothes telling you, oh, this vaccine will protect your child from this disease. And having someone dressed like a doctor with the stethoscope and everything telling you, oh, this vaccine will change, will uh, protect your child from a certain disease. So the perception is important. So I think that as a professional, as a clinician, you need to be aware of which part of your recommendations, which part of your knowledge comes from strong sources, from, from evidence, from trials from a certain maybe evidence of mechanisms that could also be good evidence and which part of your knowledge is actually a little bit more speculative. It doesn't mean it's bad. Well, in some cases, some knowledge is actually very bad because it comes from no sources and no plausible, plausible mechanism. Okay. But you should have the ability to 
differentiate between the many claims that you make while wearing the you know the clothes of the uh, of the of the expert i was just going to say you called it speculative knowledge but i take that to mean that clinical practice is just formed by a whole bunch of different knowledge types scientific knowledge being one aesthetic knowledge ethics values i mean there's a whole range of different types of knowledge forms that clinicians might draw upon i think the issue here is when the claims are made within the scientific realm that that if someone was making a claim as you said about well my my patients experience a certain thing when i go about this behavior around the pericardium is quite different to making a claim about the kind of molecular change within the pericardial tissue the structural change within the pericardial tissue around this particular intervention. One seems to be drawing upon or based in a different epistemology, a different knowledge base. And so then the claim does become perhaps pseudoscientific or at least allude to that. Right. I can say even more. You you mentioned uh, scientific knowledge and and other types of knowledge, but even within the category of scientific knowledge, there are many levels of quality. So in the evidence-based movement, uh, often you see these um, pyramids of quality of evidence. So it's quite literally like like a, a pyramid where there is some type of knowledge at the top that is considered to be very good and then going down but it doesn't mean that the knowledge that that is a bit lower in the levels is trash it can still be to to a certain extent valuable and different disciplines will have very different um rankings of the quality of knowledge it, it's inevitable we cannot make randomized controlled trials in macroeconomics i mean so even within the the category of scientific knowledge, you can have very very different uh, qualities of knowledge, and this is quite important. I like it that now we switch to talking about pseudoscientific claims, because at the beginning we were speaking about um, pseudoscience and pseudosciences, um, but it's very important to point out, like you like you did, that we should really judge claim by claim. Possibly some practices, homeopathy, maybe others, might only contain pseudoscientific claims. Or, or mainly contain. I mean, even homeopathy, we can find something within that. You know, the, the therapeutic bond between the homeopath and the patient, that's completely right. within the scientific gaze. And there's a good evidence based around that. So there didn't seem to be, I don't know, I can't think of any you know, really purely pseudoscientific practice, maybe astrology, maybe clairvoyance. Uh, it, it's hard, isn't it, to find, to reduce it down to, 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 you know, which is only pseudoscientific. Yeah, so some practices might have mostly pseudoscientific claims, but maybe there still is some, there still are some claims that are not pseudoscientific and definitely other disciplines and practices contain 
a high degree of scientific claims, but still some pseudoscience. Um, I hear every once in a while the editors of major physics journals, they receive contributions from some crazy person who um, has shown or, you know, uh, thinks that they have shown in a 20 page paper that uh, all of Einstein is, all of, you know, the entire theory of relativity is completely contradictory and it's, uh, it's completely wrong. So, I mean, I mean, this is hearsay, but I, I, I did hear this somewhere that, you know, the, the editors of physics journal, they, they do handle this type of pseudoscience that, you know, um, people send to them. So even there, there, there are, you know, even in physics, you might think of all the fields, it might, you know, should be quite easy to prove that something is pseudoscientific in physics. Uh, even then there, there is pseudoscience or some 10 years ago, there was some guy who claimed that um, the experiment in the um, CERN, in the super collider, the Large Hadron Collider, I think it's called, uh, would have um, opened a black hole that would have swallowed, um, I don't know, certainly the Earth and maybe more. So, like you said, it's it's very likely that in, in every discipline there is some degree of truth and some degree of uh, pseudoscience and but the balance can can vary wildly among uh, disciplines and practices and as can the intent of the claimant so you know we assume that those in healthcare and i genuinely do assume that those in healthcare are well-meaning well-intentioned professionals that genuinely want to alleviate the suffering of their patients. Uh, I have no doubt there are others which are more nefarious and are quite uh, comfortable with the fact that their claims just, or, or are completely knowledgeable about the fact that their claims aren't scientific, but yet are presenting them as such. And so, again, there'll be a, a kind of a degree of kind of variance in regards to intentionality and how probably most aren't, no, clearly most aren't looking to deceive. But, and again, sorry to come back to the pericardial example, I've no doubt that that person making the claim was under the impression that, that not only was that true, that particular claim, or scientifically true, but actually it was a benefit to the patient that holding that belief and acting on that belief was going to alleviate the suffering of people that they, they care for and so what do, uh, we might have touched on this, but what are your thoughts about people, maybe not people, that's not the right word, but what are your thoughts about the situation where people hold pseudoscientific beliefs, for example, or make claims which are pseudoscientific, but aren't aware of their, of their poor veracity or their poor strength or their lack of scientific rigor, but yet... And there's just a, a very deep attachment to those particular claims. I think that's something to, to point out, that the claim is often made with such passion, such strength, such belief, 
that it can be hard to to untangle from their sense of value, identity, and just probably presenting scientific facts to counter the claim doesn't work too much or a, or a good, robust argument doesn't seem to shake or move them from that position. So my, my thoughts on that, um, I think that is often the case in the health sector. People have genuine intense although there are there's a special type of cases where people start with a genuine intent for example with a new cure or a new practice at some point they 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 realize that whatever they were doing it's not working it's it's yeah but they are so tangled up there. They have invested so much that it's actually very difficult from both um, both a psychological level and sometimes even a material level to disentangle yourself. Economic level, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so that's a bit, that's a mixture between possibly an initial good intent and that later becomes... uh, nefarious but but some people for some people even that might not be the case they generally believe so you said presenting scientific facts might not be good enough for that case in fact i believe that this is generally true whoever doesn't have a solid grasp of methodology and the science method or methods and will not be able to understand very well certain objections that might be relevant to to anyone else who who has a solid knowledge maybe of methodology. I think it's equally important in teaching science and in communicating science to communicate what I called at the beginning of our chat the social environment in which science and scientific knowledge is produced. So not only learn about statistics, how to handle a sample of patients, how to handle data, how to, you know, unbias your sample and so on, but it's also important to learn about peer review, for example, to learn about what a, a philosopher, very important philosopher of science, um, Helen Long, you know, uh, what she called, it, we can paraphrase with co- constructive criticism. So the idea that being receptive to your colleagues' criticism is as important for the production of knowledge as it is knowing the very best uh, statistics that you might apply to your data. Or again, going back to to peer review, why is peer review good? Uh, It's not always good in in some cases. There might be exceptions. But why is peer review important? There have been criticisms of the peer review process, but there are definitely very important good points about anonymity, for example, of peer review. I know it's not practiced in all disciplines, but in in many sciences. Also, one of the charges against peer review 
is that the fact that they're peers and are all part of the same club, I mean, that's an issue that they're, that they're all going to subscribe to the same values, if you like, scientific values, let's say, and that it's hard to, to get into that club or get work reviewed by that club. And there's a kind of a, a social closure to that club. And for those, so I mean, I, it's often used as an argument against science to say, well, they just don't understand. And of course, you know, this, these academics or these scientists will never really understand the value of the pericardium, whatever it might be, because they're all part, they all share the same, same view. Right. I mean, I would say exactly the opposite. It's very easy to get into science with a caveat. Peer review should be anonymous. Uh, I know that's a bit of a, it, it's a mm, soft spot because in some sciences, uh, anonymous peer review is, is not practice. And, but just recently I, I read a colleague post, um, something on, on social media about the benefits of, um, anonymous peer review. He's, he, so he, he is a very well-established academic in one of the top institutions in philosophy in the world. And he said, anonymous peer review helped me climb up from the humblest of origins. So uh, he had, uh, he's Italian, he had, um, he gained a degree in um, not particularly prominent Italian university. Through anonymous peer review, people started thinking that his ideas were worth a lot. They, you know, and he published and published and, you know, now he's in a top institution. So I would say it's it's very easy to get into science because if you send your ideas and your ideas are evaluated possibly anonymously by your peers, well, if you have a really good idea, there is no reason why these people, not knowing who you are at all, shouldn't think, oh, this is a good idea. Let's, you know, let's think more about it. For doing research, you need money. And most money comes, or a lot of money comes through grants often. Well, grants are evaluated anonymously in many cases or they should be. This is also like a removal of a barrier to entry. You have a good idea, submit it to a proper body that can fund your research and then you might have success. So those charges that scientists are just a group of, you know, that there's a lot of in-group bias and in-group thinking. Sure, there might be a level of that, of course, but oftentimes it's actually exactly the opposite. Uh, scientists are looking for radical ideas and they are, or uh, even, even I know of research bodies that have special funding channels for ideas that are unlikely to be true, but are very sort of revolutionary. They are innovative. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, I would say it's exactly the opposite. And oftentimes actually the practices that are pseudoscientific, they rely on the authority of the 
whoever are the original sources, they rely on a almost cult-like communities where whoever said that this practice is the golden standard cannot be cannot be contradicted unless you want to be kicked out of this community. Uh, I I know something (laughs) like this happened to you where you you got uh, kicked out of... of... And I think you made a a good point there that that often in prominence of individuals which make the original claim which are then perpetuated by followers and devotees that there's often a, an attachment to the idea or the claim within with an originator of that claim and that attachment just follows on through the followers that they're equally as attached to the, the claim both because of its traditional value but my, my, my sense is that many of the claims which at least in my experience in my profession these claims are tied to a sense of worth and self and if you've got these really unusual intricately arranged theories and claims about why people get sick and how you might be able to help them or why people are in pain then that really does begin to separate you from almost more scientific practices medicine physical therapy which are constrained in a way well, they would see it as being they're constrained by the shackles of science and evidence-based practice whereas when you're an emerging profession discipline where it's a bit more of a kind of wild west of ideas these pseudoscientific claims flourish and are given more oxygen yeah now i'm getting into more difficult philosophical terrain but the the point that I think is important to remember is that science is constrained by uh, empirical evidence and facts. So those shackles are maybe good shackles to some extent. Theories can vary wildly and um, there are no limits to the imagination of a scientific theory. But when it comes down to whether that theory is either describing reality or giving me a good tool for doing things in reality well that has very important constraints and and yes it's it's uh, for example does it work or is it describing the reality i know things are more complex to some extent and of course uh, some facts are much harder to establish than others for example Economic facts are hard to establish. Uh, Medical facts, I think, are possibly a bit easier to establish, but they might still be harder to establish than engineering facts, you know. So you have different layers of factuality. But still, science is constrained by, as you call them, shackles, but it, you know, it's reality to some extent. Unlike often... Uh, pseudosciences that are, they don't have the same level of, of constraints. So the, the theories can make extremely, uh, very, very wild claims about what things would, would look like, but there is no, no evidence for that. But I, I'm, I'd like to give an example of, um, 
how open science can be. And again, I'm not saying that science is always so open, but there are very important examples. Um, about 10 years ago, this is an example I always, I often use to introduce my philosophy of science classes to my, to my students. About 10 years ago, some research, some Italian researchers, they, they found some results that seemed very, very strange. It seemed like the speed of light was actually, so it seemed like certain particles were actually going faster than the speed of light. Now, anyone who knows a little bit about physics knows that this is not simply some, I'm, I'm detecting the speed of something and, and, you know, I observe that it's faster, but nothing, if the theory of relativity is, is correct, then the speed of light is some sort of upper limit that you can't surpass without the fundamental laws of physics being violated. So it's an absolutely wild statement. And it's not that these physicists released this statement lightly. They observed it, they observed their, um, their results. And for many, many months, they were really puzzled. They didn't believe them. They checked and rechecked. Still, it seemed like that's what they were observing. So at some point, they released a statement, very cautious, saying, we have this result and we don't know what to do with it. It seems very strange because we think that the theory of relativity is probably a good description of reality. But if this was true, then it, it wouldn't be like that. And of course, the community was very interested and, and people were speculating what, until in the end, some other group of researchers independently tried to replicate the experiment and they found the problem. Okay, it was an experimental mistake. There were some flaws in the experiments. So case solved, still these particles are not faster than the speed of light. It was an experimental error, like it happens all the time. But the scientific community for a time was genuinely interested in trying to understand, are we actually here in front of a new revolution of our understanding of physics? Because such a result would probably have been the case. A little bit different from the pericardium. <laughs> Uh, yes, I think the reaction is is uh, <laughs> possibly a bit different. Yeah, but it's interesting. The reaction is this it was quite different. Um, Carl, I'm checking the time. We've been going for ages. We didn't really talk about the harms of pseudoscience and why it, why it bothers, why we should care about pseudoscience. So whether we want to get to the ethics of it, I mean, your example around the pancreatic cancer doctor that Clearly, the pseudoscience was harming his patients then. That seems like a very clear example of harm. But what are the... Why should we worry or be concerned about pseudoscience or pseudoscientific claims? Yeah, this could be a, a good topic to conclude our chat, I think, because in some cases, the harms of pseudoscience are obvious, they are evident. There were cases of people in the US, I heard, I read in some news, um, drinking 
antiseptic stuff to cure COVID, like poisoning themselves um, in, in crazy ways. So those cases are, you know, obvious. And, and But there are, in general, the, the harms are more than just that. I have argued in, in a paper I published, and the paper is studied, is, is titled Bogus Disagreement. So in science, disagreement is very important because disagreement among scientists is what helps propel the, the research and new ideas, new discoveries and so on. However, there is a type of disagreement which is only apparent. It's not real disagreement. And because it's the type of disagreement where one claim is made under the umbrella of science and the other claim is made under the umbrella of pseudoscience. But to the eyes of the lay public, the, the non-experts, it looks like a real disagreement. Sometimes these disagreements can be extremely bad and extremely costly in terms of uh, public, even public health. So for example, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, they have written a book about how these type of disagreements were fueled, for example, by the tobacco industry or by the oil industry to prevent policies from being implemented. But even when that is not the case, even when there is such a big actor behind, you know, this uh, bogus disagreement, these type of disagreements, they, they can actually hamper the progress of science. Without knowing much about your profession, I would venture to say that if the disagreement was kept at the scientific level, it's very likely that there would be a bit of a faster progress towards, you know, a, a, a more evidence-based profession where by evidence-based, I don't mean in any way that we should only do randomized control trials or, but, you know, good evidence and certain not, certainly not, certainly a little bit more of um, intellectual uh, epistemic uh, humility in saying this claim is based on a certain method and a certain science. And this claim is based on maybe my own limited partial experience. So I think one of the harm of pseudoscience is um, to actually slow the progress of science itself. And there are other more, let's say, public harms, like the ones you mentioned. Carlo, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain.